You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. Please open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. My name is Jason. I usually get to open up God's Word with youth and sometimes young adults ministry, but uh, today is the second of two weeks that we will be spending in uh, the book of Ruth. Today we finish uh, the story. But last week, we kind of left on a cliffhanger, and some of you might not be here, but for all of our benefit, let's kind of briefly review Act 1 and Act 2 of the story of Ruth so that we can understand where we're going today. Um, If you would remember, it was Elimelech's family that left the nation of Israel, God's chosen land for his chosen people, because of a famine. Um, The family of Elimelech, his wife Naomi... Their two sons, Malon and Nichilion, came to Moab, and they lived there. But very soon after, Elimelech died, and Naomi was left in a foreign land with her two sons. And these two took uh, wives, Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth, but very soon after, both of Naomi's sons died. And now Naomi was left with no husband, no sons, and two widows to take care of herself. But she hears that God had visited the fields in the promised land and there was harvest coming. So she decides to go home. But on her way, as they're traveling, she tells her daughters-in-law, don't come with me. One stays, but Ruth does not. And when one of the greatest acts of love and loyalty in the entire history of the Old Testament, Ruth follows her mother-in-law, abandoning her entire self-image and national identity to cling to a woman who can offer her nothing. Naomi comes to the city and she's bitter, thinking that God is against her in her suffering and absent from her so that she's alone. And she actually wants people to call her bitter rather than pleasant, which is what Naomi means. But God extends his favor and shows you are not alone. The loving, loyal daughter-in-law Ruth goes into the fields of a man named Boaz, not knowing that it was a relative of Naomi, and Boaz shows amazing, unmerited, overwhelming favor, providing for her physical needs. And it, she, what she brings home, it just blows Naomi away. And she begins to see maybe God's not alone. Uh, Maybe God hasn't left me alone. And maybe God is with me and he hasn't forsaken me. And the seeds of hope are scattered into her life by the favor of God. And those seeds of hope begin to restore a broken heart. So we come into act three. But I'm, I'm curious What would Naomi's life look like if she did not seek and respond to the favor of God? What if she didn't want to be restored and would have preferred to be known as Mara, as as bitter? Well, last week we considered that restoration, the uh, bringing back of something that was broken, is a key theme in, in not only Ruth and in the whole Bible, but In any good story, restoration is a key theme. Restoration and redemption also. But there are lots of stories in our culture that are very pervasive in our culture today and very popular that 
do not have restoration and do not have redemption in it. Um, these are the stories that celebrate Naomi of Act 2, the anti-heroes, the dark protagonist. No morals, no good, just a life of pain, begetting a life of pain and going out in a blaze of fire. You probably know stories of anti-heroes. One of the first that really popularized it a lot in pop culture was that one that we hated to read in high school. Uh, remember that kid Holden Coalfield and Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger? I hated reading this book in high school. It was horrible. This kid who just has, he, he, just a suburban kid in a boarding school has everything, but he just, everyone's a phony and he prefers to be bitter and If anyone really has genuine joy, they're just fake. They're not real. He prefers to be angry. This attitude has really invaded pop culture storytelling. And the hero of our day is not the happy person. They're just a fraud. The hero of our day is the sad person with a story. The greatest celebrated hero of this modern day is this man, Walter White. The man who was a simple chemist at a, in, in a firm, lost his job, and has to suffer through teaching chemistry to high schoolers who couldn't care less, and gets cancer, and has a failing marriage, and uh, has bills to pay for chemo, but doesn't tell his family, so he cooks crystal meth and sells it to pay for the bills and and then just this is this is the celebrated hero of our age this is the greatest protagonist of the day and this attitude has really invaded our culture especially like my generation and the generation that follows me it's we consider it easier to be a sad person with a story than a genuinely happy person with no story who just fits into the crowd. But praise God that this is not the end of the story for Naomi. Just pain begetting pain, going out in a blaze of fire, only being able to get pity from people and no other affection. Today, we will see the redemption of God. And we will see that God's redemption, not only in Naomi's life, but still today, God's redemption rescues the lost and offers true, genuine, satisfying fullness of joy. And our faithful God can offer that redemption and that joy to each one of us today. So as we did last week, I want to invite you to stand that we would pray together and ask that the Lord would teach us in this time. Father, lots of us are in pain, and Father, sometimes it's, I confess, uh, it's easier for me just to try and build up a sad story rather than grab your hand and be pulled out of the pit that I dug myself into. Father, we thank you that redemption truly rescues us and that there's true joy in you. And God, I would pray for our church today. Lord, that we would seek that redemption, that we would find it in Christ Jesus, and Lord, that we would not settle 
to be a victim, but that we would know what it means to be child of God who is loved and can have joy. We desire this. I know you offer this. Please, by the spirit of Christ, show this to us today. We do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Act three opens, and Naomi wants to do anything that she can to find a husband for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And she realizes this guy, Boaz, is a realistic option. Uh, he's a close relative, but also, like, he's been showing kindness to Ruth. So maybe he actually is already kind of interested. Realistic option. So she creates this dramatic and audacious plan to communicate that Ruth is available for marriage, yet dependent and submissive to Boaz as the one who must, by his own will, choose to marry her. So let's read verse 1 to 5 of chapter 3. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley each night at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But, lie down, but when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Naomi created a dramatic and audacious plan to communicate to Boaz. She was available for marriage, and she was dependent and submissive on his free will to choose to marry her. Now, in your Bible, um, the word translated in verse 3 to describe Ruth's garment that Naomi tells her to put on, if you have the NIV or the NASB, that's translated best clothes. But frankly, that's kind of a bad translation of that word. The really the best way to understand what Ruth is tell, being told to put on is just like an everyday garment. There was one for girls and there's one for guys. And just whenever I read this previously, I kind of picture this like she's getting dolled up and, and trying to uh, trying to impress her, uh, trying to make herself good to impress uh, this guy. But really, that's not the way that we should understand this scene. What the scene is really about is Naomi telling. Ruth, if you're going to show this guy that you're available, then you can't wear your widow garments anymore. You, the time for mourning is over. Wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Take off the garments signifying that you're a widow and, and put on your everyday clothes. And she wanted to communicate that she was also dependent on his free will to choose to marry her. So she addressed herself, we will see in a minute, as a servant. She addressed herself as a servant to Boaz. Now, remember this is the time of the judges, where it was said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it could seem, if we interpret this the wrong way, that in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, isn't this kind of like a provocative plan? Like, listen, kind of listen to what Naomi's telling Ruth. She says, okay, go and spy on him at night, all right? Okay? And, uh, um, and wait till he's asleep, okay? Good, yeah? And go and, and uncover the lower half of his legs, okay? All right? 
and then just lay down there and wait. Good, good plan? Is this, is this dramatic? Yeah, yeah, it's dramatic. Is this audacious or risky? Yeah, it could be, but provocative? We're going to read verse 6 to 9, and it's going to be pretty obvious that there are zero shades of gray uh, in this plan. (laughs) Verse 6 says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. After we see the plan unfold, now we see Boaz's intent. Boaz's intent. Let's keep reading verse 10 to 18. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do, all, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen, that you, I know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives and I will redeem you, lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before no one could recognize one another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she had come to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz's intent is demonstrated in that he is resolved to marry Ruth. Uh, Like we saw in Act 2, in Act 3 also, he wants to honor God's law. He knows there's someone else that has the rights before him, and he wants to honor God's law. He doesn't just take whatever he wants. But in a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, he was very careful to protect the integrity of the woman that he was to marry by avoiding suspicion. He was resolved to marry her resolved to be the redeemer. But I was really curious to understand like what, what motivated his strong, firm resolve. And as, as I read this more, especially seeing his response to her act in verse 10, I believe that the author is communicating to us and intending us to believe that it's Ruth's love and loyalty that gives him deep Resolve. Look what he says in verse 10. It's, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. He didn't believe that he was the object of her love and loyalty. He saw and knew what he did, she did for her mother in law, abandoning her national identity, 
to cling to Naomi. And now she sees that she's willing to marry someone within Naomi's family line when he like considers her like a free agent. Like you could marry anyone. Like I'm a bit older than you. You could go after a young guy, whatever, rich or poor, but you chose someone in your mother-in-law's family line? He sees this love and this loyalty and it blows him away. And he's resolved to marry her. Now, uh, the affection that Boaz describes that she has in my Bible, it's translated kindness in verse 10. This last kindness is greater than the first. Um, and uh, you've probably seen this, this word before in Scripture, especially if, especially if you've read the Psalms. But in the Psalms, this same word is translated differently. Often in the Psalms, it's translated the steadfast love of the Lord. You see, what Boaz saw in this young woman was a reflection of God's divine, exclusive, covenant love for his chosen people. And he saw it in a foreigner. And it blew him away. God's love is a faithful love. It is an enduring love. It is a bearing love. It is even a jealous love. And he saw it in this Moabite. And he is resolved to marry her. How awesome is it when this type of not seeking my own interests, completely not self-seeking love is expressed from one human being to another. And not only expressed, it's, it's mutual. It's, it's amazing. I, I want this. I want to be able to show the love that Ruth showed. I want to be able to display a love that doesn't seek my own interests, but is solely concerned with the interests of others. But if I'm honest with myself, I really struggle with that. I mean, it's kind of easy to love like people that I see like once a week for 30 minutes in between the nine o'clock and 11 o'clock service and don't see again for another week, right? Like it's easy to be kind to those people, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's the people in closest proximity to us. It's the people that depend on us the most to show them that love and loyalty that we often let down and that often see how really self-seeking we really are. I struggle to love that. Do you? Who is it specifically in your life? Maybe your spouse. Um, maybe it's your mom or your dad. Maybe it's your child or a coworker or a small group member. I think we can agree that this type of love isn't learned and practiced by theory. Rather, I would say that this type of love is only expressed as it is experienced. First John 4.19. Say it out loud if you know it. We love because he first loved us. We should experience God's love before we ever would try to manufacture some plastic version of it. 
And it starts with acknowledging I'm that person who is self-seeking. I'm that person who hurts people because of my lovelessness. And before the eyes of God, I'm the enemy. I'm the willful rebel. I'm the foreigner. I'm the idol worshiper. I don't say this in jest about myself. Too often I forget that and think that I'm worthy of God's love, but I'm a sinner. I know how loveless I can be, but I believe the word of God. And the word of God says, God shows his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not like he died to make you lovable and then he showed affection to you. It's when you're at your worst, when you're, you are at your dirtiest, when you're at your lowest, he loved you then. He loved me then. That is the love of God that we can experience by faith in Jesus Christ. And when I believe, I believe that when you see yourself in the shadow of the cross, by faith you can experience the love of God and you will learn to naturally express it. Act 3 closes and we see another amazing act of love and loyalty from Ruth. And we see that Boaz... The second in-line redeemer is resolved to do all that he can to redeem. Act four opens and we begin to see the redeeming power of God rescue a lost inheritance and offer fullness of joy to a broken heart. We see the redemption of God in chapter four, verse one to 10. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And then he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it, uh, for lest I impair my own inheritance take my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was the manner of attesting in Israel so that when the redeemer said to Boaz buy it for yourself he drew off his sandal then Boaz said to the elders and all the people You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So what we really just saw there is really like a legal process. 
And it was a transaction validating that the right of redemption was passed on from the closest relative to the next in line, who was Boaz. He, what he required was the right to be what's called the king, kinsman redeemer. And we see that law in a Deuteronomy 25. I'll read this for you. It says, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 6, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, like Malon and Chilion, the wife of the dead man shall not uh, be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother, or like close relative in the case where both immediate brothers die, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. So we saw last week that um, God, in giving Israel uh, the land, giving his chosen people the chosen land, his covenant offered them the inheritance of that each family would have a property in that land forever uh, with the condition that they were faithful to keep the law. But if, like in the case of Naomi's family, all of the sons of the family had died and the family line was broken, then the closest family relative would marry in. And then the firstborn son wouldn't actually be like Boaz's, it would actually technically be Malon's and from the line of Elimelech, so that their inheritance would be redeemed and restored. That's what happened here. And it's really interesting that Boaz acts with this like shrewd wisdom. He's second in line, but he's resolved. And he's, he has this shrewd wisdom. But this other guy is, seems kind of like selfish. And even if, like, it doesn't give an explanation to exactly why he considered the change that it would impair his inheritance. Maybe it was like, well, I'm okay with like the value added from the land, but when I fiscally evaluate the cost of marrying Ruth and taking care of another widow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose money in this deal. Maybe it was a fiscal decision or maybe he was just like straight up racist. It's like, oh, a Moabite? I'm not going to impair my inheritance with that. And we're not told exactly, but what we do know is that with the exchange of the shoe and the witness of the elders, the transaction giving Boaz the right of redemption was validated. And he could now marry Ruth. And now, by God's grace, if a son was born, the line of Elimelech would be restored along with the inheritance. Movie trailers have changed a lot over time, even in like my short lifespan, but even like well before then, like what we see for uh, movie trailers now is like really different from what it was previously. From what I've seen, movie trailers used to be like a two-minute version of the movie. And after I saw it, it was like, okay, I don't need to go see the movie now. Like that's the whole thing right there. Lots of narration, but movie trailers have changed a lot. And 
I mean, February with Super Bowl and stuff is kind of like movie trailer season. It's getting us ready for all the blockbusters that are coming out. You saw them, and you've probably seen them online. And, and they're different. They're, they're like te- they're teasers. They just give you a glimpse. And, and the really weird thing is that, like, you have a teaser trailer, and you have, like, a teaser trailer to the teaser trailer. So the first one was, like, 10 seconds. It's like, come back tomorrow, and you'll see the real teaser trailer. And it's, it's kind of mean, but... It, the point of trailers is to give us a glimpse of the story that's going to come. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul told Timothy to commit himself to the reading of the sacred writings because they would be able to make him wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we would understand that the sacred writings are a reference to the Old Testament. You see, there are artifacts and stories in the Old Testament that are teaser trailers of the gospel, that are glimpses of what is to come. Boaz and the kinsman redeemer is a glimpse of the gospel. Consider the bare bones um, aspects of this story. A Gentile woman who is a foreigner and has no share in the abundant blessing promised to Abraham and his descendants, finds herself lost and alone. No access within herself to this inheritance. But a redeemer, who by his own will, and by the gift, a free gift, can offer her the inheritance steps in and does redeem her that she might have a share in the inheritance. Friends, Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Consider Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Redemption changes everything. It absolutely changes everything. Let's step out of the story and consider our own narrative. A redemption is this idea of like buying back something that was lost, paying the cost to buy something back. And in the gospel, Jesus buys us back from the curse of our sin that we all have justly incurred because of our lawlessness. Jesus buys us back from that and gives us, as a free gift of grace, the inheritance of eternal life, sealed and guaranteed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. If today were the last page of the last chapter of the story of your life on earth, would you stand before God and be given an inheritance unto eternal life? Or would you receive a curse until eternal damnation? And if you were before God, what would you say as a defense for either one? You can't, depend, you can't defend yourself by your own goodness. We're, we're all cursed because we've all sinned. 
you can't depend on someone else like the faith of your parents. Uh, we're all cursed. We've all sinned. And each individual one needs a redeemer. You don't get to go in on someone else's card. But if you see today that you are guilty and you know that you have broken God's law and you've lived seeking your own self-interests with a lovelessness that puts you on the throne, then friends, look no longer on your sin. Look no longer on your sin But look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ. He became your curse. He took your curse. He paid your price that if you would believe in him, that he died and rose again, you would be granted the gift of eternal life. You would be given the inheritance in the promise first given to Abraham you would be redeemed. But Christian, you might say, yes, that is my defense. That is what I would say. So I would ask you a question too. Why do we live to gratify our own desires and not first to glorify God? Redemption implies ownership. 1 Corinthians 6.20. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. So glorify God in your body. Redemption changes everything. It gives us new life. It gives us new purpose. And in this story, it brought about the blessing of God. Let's look at verse 11 and verse 12. After doing the shoe exchange, the witnesses speak and they say, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into you like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to you by this young woman. So the witnesses kind of like prayed a prayer of blessing over Boaz and Ruth. They asked for the blessing of a large family, the blessing of a worthy reputation, and the blessing of a successful marriage. But if you remember, we noticed last week that though the narrative is mainly progressed through Boaz and Ruth, the focus is neither Boaz or Ruth, but the real focus of the story is on Naomi and the Lord's interaction with her throughout her suffering. And we see that when God's redemption comes, when God's redemption is sealed, the seeds of hope that were first first scattered into her heart, that began to restore her soul, have now come to full blossom. And the redemption of the God in her life rescued what was lost and produced a garden of joy, fullness of joy, rescuing her out of the desert and into an oasis. Look at verse 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, 
Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I thought it was really interesting that the women of the town are back into the picture. Last time we saw them, uh, Naomi had come back from being gone from 10 years and the women are like startled. They're stirred up. They're like, is this Naomi? She's been gone a decade. Is this Naomi? And the last interaction that we see with Naomi and the woman of the town is she wants them to know that she's a bitter old lady. But that's not what we see here. What we see is a woman who by the redeeming power of God has been rescued from what was lost and now shares in fullness of joy together with these women. She shared in the joy of worshiping God with the woman of the town. She shared in the joy of her inheritance, not a glimmer of hope, but now alive and in her hands. Interestingly, it wasn't the mother of Ruth that named the kid. It wasn't the father Boaz that named the kid. It wasn't even Naomi, though they said it was her child that named the kid. It was the woman of the town that named the kid. And they named him Obed. And remember, names mean something. Obed means the one who serves. The woman of the town saw the joy that the redemption of God gave this woman who was once bitter. And they saw the redemption of God and believed that this child would serve her, nourishing and restoring her life and sustaining her joy throughout her gray years. But even greater than that, she shared in the joy with these women of the town by the relationship she had with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She, though had she had lost her husband and her two sons, considered that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, was worth more to her than any amount of biological children ever could provide. God rescued this woman with his redemption and filled her heart with joy. And you know what, friends? Joy is available to all who have found the redemption of God. You don't need to settle to be the anti-hero. Having a life of pain that begets pain and just going out in a blaze of fire. You don't need to settle on only finding affection from the pity of the masses, you can find true love and true joy in the redemption of God. You are not a victim, only deserving of pity. Those who have believed are children of God and are dearly loved by his Father. And if you've believed, you've been given the right to be called a child of God. 
Do not curl up in the pit of your circumstances and reject the hand that reaches down to lift you up. Do not live the remainder of your days as a bitter person rejecting God's favor, God's grace, and God's redemption, but reach up and be pulled out and you will find joy. Taste and see, friends. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and drink from the fountain of life that is the Holy Spirit and drink deeply until you are satisfied. Find your fullness of joy. But the story doesn't end here. The epilogue teaches us that this isn't just one Uh, story of redemption for one family in one location in one period of time. This is a story of God's redemption for all families in all places for all of time. Let's read the remaining verses. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David, the little shepherd boy who took on Goliath. The little shepherd boy who was the man after God's own heart, who the Lord crowned king and was used to rescue the nation of Israel out of the chaos of the time of the judges and into the peace and prosperity that God promised. You see, we saw each of the four themes that we discussed last week in this narrative. We saw God's sovereignty over suffering. We saw God's sovereignty over all nations, God's, sovereign, God's faithfulness to his people. But most importantly, the primary theme of this story God's faithfulness to his own covenant. The Lord used David to restore this nation. And it was to David that God promised one of his sons would be a king that reigns forever in a kingdom of peace and prosperity. And it was Jesus of Nazareth, born of the city of David, born in the line of David, who by his death and resurrection has been crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords and sits enthroned by his father's right hand and will one day restore all things unto himself. Death will be no more and every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. The former things will pass away and it will be said once again as it was when God created the universe that the dwelling place of man is with God and Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King will reign in his kingdom for eternity. And was it not Jesus Christ who told his disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the true story of the book of Ruth.